Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode 33 of Transition Talk, where we talk about the messy path to ownership. I am tired. (laughs) Are you tired, Charles Loretto? I'm not that tired. You sound really (laughs) tired. (laughs) Today we have a fun topic for you. We just got back, or wrapping up, a long string of speaking engagements and most recently just visited Chai Town, ASDA National Leadership Conference, and we had a traditional lecture and then we did something fun, a new format. We actually did a live Q&A on ownership, took questions, had some standard questions that we always get, answered those, but then asked for some feedback. And we got so many, probably 75, 80 kind of sheets with multiple questions on it where just really good, insightful questions about ownership and what people are worried about and how to tackle unique situations. And so we only had 45 minutes, so we only got to answer a few and we thought it'd be fun to tackle them here on the podcast. So we're going to make this a couple episodes and it was fun to do it live and it's even more fun to record it. No, it was. It was very podcasty type yeah. of format that we did. And and it asked us because we've been invited speakers there for a number of years. We speak both in the fall and the spring session of the conference. And it asked us to switch it up a little bit. And so basically, instead of giving the why message, they said, okay, let's fast forward that thing and make sure that people know the why. Mm-hmm. But then let's look at a lot of different options for them. So we did that lecture. And so that was fun. But then I had been working with their kind of leadership team and came up with this idea of what if we did this live Q&A thing. And so what Christy and I did at that lecture was basically say, hey, do not ask us about debt. Yep, no. No. How to create a job opportunity. Nope, we're not going to deal with that. What to say, because we've got podcasts that are dealing with that. But let's force these young people, these D1 and D4 leaders in the dental community to write down these questions. And like you said, it was something like 80 sheets with a two, three questions. He's a couple they hundred. They showed up. And so no prep, Mm-mm. right? We Mm-mm. just took these things and just read them out. And I didn't know what you were going to say. Nope. You know what I was going to say? I had so much fun. It was so much fun. It was good. And I have to say before we get started, because we're going to do the same thing today. We have these questions. Yeah. We're just going to read them out and answer the questions. But before we get started, we hopefully have a lot of new listeners from mm-hmm. our speaking. So I just want to give a big shout out to District 11 that I went yes, and spoke nice, with. Got to nice. meet a lot of those again at ASDA. And I know you've gone to a few yeah. good programs. Yeah. On Monday of this past week, went to Richmond, spoke at BCU. And there was like several followers there on the podcast. And they were like, any way I can get a shout out? And, <laughs> and even I spoke to the orthos there and they were there. They said the same thing. Is any way I can get a shout out on the podcast and so yes BCU we love (laughs) you our new ASDA listeners we love you and I spoke in Mason City at the study club and you were in San Francisco, uh-huh. so we have been all over Memphis. the place. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. So welcome, yes, welcome to yes. this non-traditional episode. So let's get going. All right, so I feel like I'm the host today. <laughs> Go for it. I am going to be the reader of the question, because that's what we did. We got to repeat, because it mm-hmm. went so well. So, Christy, yes. what are the benefits of owning a private practice versus a group practice? And what I understood this young person to really ask is, We're talking about a solo practice versus buying a practice with multiple doctors. So what are those benefits? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think first, I mean, there's clearly financial benefits and you can tackle those. But I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, are you the partner type or are you not? Like there are people that are born and they want the mentorship and they want the partnership and they want someone to be able to bounce ideas off of and cover while they're gone. And then there are just the people that do not want to give up control. And it's okay, right? Like no one's judging you for whatever type of person you are, but I think you have to 
know what type of person you are. Don't force yourself to be a partner if that's just not how you run, right? You want to have control, just do it and take it and run with it and be successful. But I think you have to know yourself a little bit and understand kind of how you work and how you'll work best to know if you're going to be successful. Yeah, I think that's one of those things, just having kids, you see it right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you see like my daughter will absolutely 1 million percent lead any project. She's always going to be a leader on the team and she's just going to knock it out. If she's in dentistry, I guarantee you that you know, she may be a good partner, but she's probably going to be probably just a better leader to kind of run her own show. The other thing that really jumped at me with that question is sometimes when you look at the financial aspect, if you're working on this whole work-life balance thing, and maybe you might analyze a practice, and this practice, let's say, is doing 600,000 collections, and it nets approximately 200, 225, and you're trying to figure out, should I buy this thing? And when you start factoring in how much the debt is going to be on the practice you're purchasing and maybe you're going to net like 150 or 175 after debt and you really just want to keep the practice about a three-day-a-week practice, the first thought is I'm kind of making that as an associate. So I'm not real sure if I should do this. But one of the things, too, is like the benefits of like a group practice, and I know we've tackled this on a previous episode, is the benefit of having two people. So the benefits could be is... I kind of like a little bit on my own, but I kind of want the benefits of sharing some of that cost and, and maybe having that work-life balance. So that's a strategy, too, where maybe two individuals mm-hmm. might want to do a, a group practice together. So I think you really have to kind of dive in, look at yourself, and then look at the economics of the solo or the group. And then sometimes I'll say that I don't want to do that, but if you pay me enough, I might. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> All right. The second one is we're talking about just concerns that they have. And so hiring and managing of the staff, what is the best way to go about this? Pretty sure there's entire libraries and a lot of money that's made off trying to tell people how best to do this thing. I think it's something that you and I continue to, you know, and everyone who has people who are on their team and you don't have to be a manager or a boss, right? right? You work with people, you are managing people and humans. And so I think first and foremost, you have to know those people. You have to understand that like you can't apply one formula to every person and every person's going to have different things that make them tick. Right. And most most of the time when we're talking about transition, you are coming into a very dynamic environment and right. you are taking over for someone who those people have probably worked for for 10, 15, 20 years. So there's emotion that goes there. So I think just again, what we say all the time, which is kind and humble, I think you have to have direction and most people want direction. They don't want to feel like they're making decisions or you're like, hey, whatever works. Like, I think you have to have a plan, but I think you have to be open and open to feedback and request their input with still kind of a leadership frame of mind. When I read this, to me, you know, if you're buying a practice, there's five employees and the, the business is yielding a million collections and then four, it's already working. Oh, yeah, right? for so sure. I don't need to try to figure out how to make it work. It's actually working. It, it's a conveyor belt that everything's just working. So you're basically just coming in and, and like you said, picking up on understanding those key employees. The, the employees, is, you got to understand them. you got to spend one-on-one time with them. It could be they got something going on in their life. It could be a pay. It could be health insurance is really important to them. You just have to figure out what that is. But bottom line, it's kind of already working. Mm-hmm. Like managing a business and owning a business, it's like kids. It's like relationships. You don't really know. You do mm-hmm. have to do a little bit of this from a learning experience. And obviously, we've not always hired the best employees. But when we get the good ones and we know it, we figure out how to keep Yes. Them. It's like what you say in parenting, right? Like, I love you and I like you, but I can't always be your friend type of thing. Like you just have certain employees that, if, especially if you buy into a practice that this happens, like I'm not going to act like this doesn't happen. You buy into a practice that has 
a problem employee or whatever. Like sometimes you just kind of have to like take ownership and be like, hey, this is what needs to happen. And a lot of times, and we said this in lecture, the other employees on the team already know that that person's a problem. And so then they're grateful that you've kind of addressed something that they're probably trying to figure out how to deal with anyway. Yeah. Old guy, old gal that's typically in the practice typically doesn't want to deal with these type of mm-hmm. things. They know they're on the way out. They'll just continue to maybe overpay people or let that employee basically take advantage of the entire system. So that practice is definitely looking for you to kind of step in to be a leader. And leadership is over time. It's yeah. not just you're it's just going to be an evolution. 27, 28, just like, boom, I'm just naturally going to figure this out. You got to go through that pain. Next question. When determining if a private practice is good, what factors do you look at other than location? Oh, man. A lot. So location, we always say, is the number one thing because you're going to have to live here and you're going to have to plant roots there and you're not going to probably do this a bunch of times, right? So your location for her. For or him. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> the spouse. Whatever. Women rule. They always get what they want. Location is there. So what she just said is once the spouse, the female spouse says location is great, what else are they looking for? The next thing in my mind is profitability, yes. right? Like we want to make hope. as much money as possible as quickly as possible. I think the type of dentistry, if we're going more softer location, the type of practice that you want to operate, the profitability, all of those things I think matter. And then we can get super nitty gritty and talk about what the finish out is like and all these other pieces. But I think for me, it's location, the type of practice, is it Medicaid, is it fee-for-service, is it insurance, the demographics of the patients, like whatever you've kind of idealized as your practice, does it fit? And then is it profitable? So it could be a brand new, beautiful office with the perfect flooring and the perfect lighting and all maybe 30 or 40 different flat screens everywhere and a cone beam and this but if you're saying no patients no active patients and I don't know no money that's not a trap yeah I'm out <laughs> it's kind of like when you're looking for a house like I could probably pick some neighborhoods I'd love to live in and the houses I'd love to live in but at the end of the day I have to make sure it's in my budget too yeah, yeah. so I think you have to kind of prioritize what's important to you and then yeah. kind of try to find the one that fits the most buckets it, it's Sometimes people, and I know a lot of groups, they'll look at maybe buying a smaller practice and maybe to them, it's the upside. They want to grow something. So they want to grow something. They're going to get a good deal on it. And we can help them with basically some chart audits and for them kind of going inside and looking at these practices, seeing what procedures are being referred out, making sure we got a good footprint that we can grow inside of that, look at the competition. Maybe we're going to acquire another practice. So there's a lot of different things in that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, first and foremost was a gross, was a net, you know, type is going to be our first couple of things. So other concerns, here's another question, is when you look at the risk, when you're going to make that jump and take this risk, when do you know the timing is right to pull the trigger and make this decision? I don't think the timing ever feels like, I mean, unless you've been an associate, the only people that I have talked to that are like zero hesitation are the people who have been an associate for too long. Yes. Like it's like seven to 10 years they've been looking or they haven't been looking and they're just done with wherever they are and they find something and they're telling us don't mess it up. Right. Like they're like, this is the practice. I know there's opportunity here, but for most people that we're working with that are buying a practice, it is scary. You are investing a lot of money. It is an unknown. It is not something that you've likely got a lot of preparation for educationally, you know, in your programs. And so it feels scary. And I think there's always going to be the level of like, is this the right thing? And I think that's what we focus on, which is like educate yourself so that you can remove as much of that as possible. Like there's always going to be that little piece that's like, oh my gosh, like so scary. Yeah. yeah. And that happens until close yeah. for most of our buyers. I had two comments there is one I was 
uh, single for nine years. And so when everybody I knew told me that I needed to marry Roxanne, I knew that it was appropriate to take the risk. Yes. <laughs> because we were there, okay? We've got a really cute couple in Florida that we're working with right now. And he and his wife follow along. They're looking at the practice. And so we always have this saying, when we see a practice that it's a no-brainer, we always say, you know, don't mess it up. Mm-hmm. And so I told his wife, you know, I'm going to talk to Charles today. And if he tells me not to mess it up, we're going to do it. <laughs> you know? So, so I think it's just the same thing for him is that you've got that group in front of you and they're just really looking and trying to push you to ownership. And sometimes you're not ready at that first year, but you'll know when you're ready. And I would just say that a lot of times, even if you don't know you're ready, you're probably ready. One to two years is plenty for these young people. Yeah, but I think a healthy amount of fear is super, super natural and common. And again, I always say too, like, listen to your gut in some of these practices. Like, I've talked to people that are like, I just don't get a good feeling about this practice, right? Right. Like, I know the numbers look to check out, but something's off, right? Like, there are times when that's right too. I mean, like, there's no crystal ball. There's nothing that anyone can tell you of like, this is what it's going to be. But I mean, I think you have to trust yourself and your abilities and just educate yourself as much as possible. and that's just like the relationship piece. So you're hanging around, you're dating that person. You really do know and get that feeling. Yeah. And, and you've asked enough questions there to where it's the right move. Okay. So once you do take this practice over, what is the first thing that you do? Oh, man. Again, like super loaded question. So when you take it over, first thing that you do when you take it over? Yeah. Have a glass of champagne? <laughs> My first response is nothing. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like you go in there and you learn and you keep it going just the way it was going. I mean, that's first three to six months. We don't want you to change anything. Yeah. And I've said this before. It's just that when you are going to make change with the team is you want to make them feel as much involved as possible. Yeah. Even like with computers or investments you're taking or a consultant, you want to make it about them. So you could even, if you're going to go down to the Shine or Patterson or Benko's, you know, type of equipment, kind of regional area, maybe do some shopping together. Hey, let's bring a couple of consultants in for us to market and brand differently or grow and just get their involvement. Get the involvement of the entire team if we need to get rid of somebody. That, you know, mm-hmm. what are some one or two things? If, if Sally is the person that needs to go, then that's probably going to be the first thing. Even like little do. things like staff appreciation. I mean, like all those things go a long way and just kind of getting the support of the staff and the patients and showing them who you are. I mean, because as much fear as you feel on the front end of coming in, I mean, they're at a job and they're getting a new boss and that could mean a whole lot of things. And maybe they've heard horror stories or maybe they've heard good things. They don't know. So don't change anything. We're working with a guy named Chad right now and he's right on the verge of closing on the practice and he's a D4. Uh, We've got two D4s that are closing. Mm -hmm. Uh, One already closed this year. So D4s, you can do this. Yep. Okay. Out of the gate without residency, 100%, you can do this. So we've got two this year. They're closing less than six months. He's built such a relationship in that practice with that established doctor. He's won the staff over so much that the staff thought it would be hilarious to tape the door with the caution tape and basically said they took the established doctor's office and they said this is for the under construction for the new owner. They haven't even <laughs> closed on the practice. And so just took cute. a couple of pictures. We're going to get those posted. And just I'm really proud of sometimes of how we work with these couples because he actually brought the established doctor to us and we've been to help facilitate that transaction. So it's uh, super, super fun. Okay. Another question. So this one says, if you're moving to an entire new area, a new state, and you have zero connections, 
are we still doing the letter campaign? That's when you do the letter campaign. That's a, no, exactly. Yes, that's why you do the I mean, you do the letter campaign when you want to go somewhere, but you have no insight into like what's available, no connections. The letter campaign is to find an opportunity, but the letter campaign is also to create a network for yourself yeah. too, right? Like even if someone's not selling, they see you as an up and coming someone who is coming into the field and hopefully want to connect with you and mentor and just be a colleague. Yeah. The thing too about that letter campaign, sometimes it, it's difficult. You know, sometimes you, maybe you're in, uh, I don't know, you're practicing in Greensboro, North Carolina, and you've been there for four years and senior doctor said he was going to transition the practice to you. And now he or she's not, and you're getting frustrated. Well, it's very difficult to do the letter campaign in Greensboro, North Carolina, because everyone's going to know everybody. It's like, yeah. Hey, Bill, you know, Johnny is upset. He's leaving. He sent me a letter. So that's a little harder. So Mm -hmm. you always want to do it, especially when you're in your residency program or if you're just as a student. I had one of the on the letter campaign come up to me and says, well, I'm joining the Navy. And so when do you think I should do that? Is it the day you get in the Navy, the day you get your beautiful new outfit, your outfit? I think it's called a uniform. (laughs) I like outfit. (laughs) (laughs) When you get your cute new outfit from the military, (laughs) you you and your spouse are now going to announce back to Greenville, North Carolina, that you're coming back in three years. And just amazing to be able to see what that uniform will actually kind of work for you. Mm -hmm. So, All right, next question. Some of these just made me giggle. So this one says, how long should I plan to own? Forever. I mean, like, as long as you want to make money. Yeah. And as long as you want to do dentistry. Right. Right. As long as you want a tax plan. It goes back to your your five reasons you own. You own because you make more money, tax planning, pension planning, investments, you know, it control your own destiny. I guess it could go back to that location. It could be where your first opportunity for 20 years was in Greensville, North Carolina, you and the spouse, but now kids are out. And now they move colleges or something or something like that. I now, talked to someone today. Yeah. They are in Tennessee. Okay. And their kids are now in college in Texas. So where do you think they're going? Texas. It's so hard for a young person to think this way, but you love your kids so freaking much that you will do ridiculous things. I guess I could buy you a beer. Always my, my rules are when I pay for stuff is when I make more than you or you don't own. So uh, anytime you want me to give you some counseling on how children and how much they cost and the stress, please let me hang out with you. But yeah, we well, will do crazy things for these kids. And I think that you have to understand that like why we preach ownership is the flexibility. Like Definitely. maybe the reason this question was asked is because she doesn't want to do dentistry forever. I maybe, assume it's yeah. a she because it's really pretty handwriting. So not being no, sexist there. But maybe it's because they don't want to do dentistry forever and they have another goal. And to me, it's like own a practice and you can own and be super frugal and just like sock away money so that way you can retire when you're 45 or 50 and go do whatever is next. So I mean like you own as long as you want to own and have that plan and meet your goals. But what's cool is if you did have a million dollar practice that was paid for and you make $400,000 and you want to move to Texas, beautiful thing is you sell it Yep. For seven eight hundred thousand, and guess what? You go buy another Texas, yep. and get it's the same thing. So uh, that's the beautiful thing about ownership is just being able to not only have something, but to be able to keep that thing going on. So choosing an area that will continue to benefit me twenty years from now, i.e., changing demographics. Oh man, again, like I crystal ball, like I, mean, I can't. Yeah. How are you going to be able to look at a community and say that it's we're in Plano, Texas, right now? And this particular area was bankrupt in 2009, and it's one of the fastest growing multi-billion dollar oh, yeah. you know economy here. I mean, in if you think of area. any of the suburbs around most urban areas, like 
some of them you can tell, right? right? But like there's a suburb north of here, Salina. Right. 20 years ago, right. like you couldn't get there without going on a two lane road. And now it's like booming and like right. the next thing. So I clearly you have to look at demographics. If you go into a super saturated area, you have to understand it's probably not going to get bigger or better. You're going to be stable and you have to be okay with that. But again, I think you go to a location that you can live in and that you understand what's going to happen. A great story of a client in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. They were in an area, then over that 20, 30-year career, the practice basically went down. And so they wanted to move to this new up-and-coming area. Well, now I've got guys now in their 60s borrowing several million dollars to build one of the most beautiful offices in all of Charlotte. Why would a 60-year-old go 10 miles away or 5 miles away from their current location? Well, number one, because they can't. Mm -hmm. They already got millions put away. Mm -hmm. They do very, very well. And what they did is they went to go build over there. They got associates that are now becoming partners to assume some of that risk. They kept the other location, and they basically set it up as a Medicaid clinic. So they still own the real estate and then had people come in to work at that office. So it's still profitable. Yeah. And then let them buy into that piece as well. So... You won't be able to really, like you said, crystal ball it, figure out that this is going to be the magic thing 20 years from now, but you got to make some pretty safe bets and, and take advantage of uh, Well, and I think you have to buying. be continue to be educated about the market you're in, right? Like if you are paying attention to demographics and how things are moving, you can probably tell that your area is trending towards one way or the other and maybe try to get ahead of the curve. Yeah, I love this next one. How much extra time do you spend as an owner on your duties <laughs> versus being an associate. A lot, but you're being rewarded for that too. Not just financially. I mean, I think like when you own something, you are probably way more proud of it. I mean, right. like it's your investment, it's your it people, is. like people are relying on you. So, I mean, I think you do spend a lot more time, but most owners that I've spoken with, it just is part of it. I mean, every now and then someone's like, yeah, I'm just tired of owning. I'm just kind of ready. But those are 65, 70. They've been doing it for 35, 40 years. So, I mean, I think you spend more time. Yeah, I just think it's who you are as an individual too because I think there's times I think that you will get burned out when you do something for a long period of time but you're just trying to hire the right people to work with you sometimes you're having consultants to come in to kind of guide you through some of your challenges that you're having in your practice or in this case even our office and when you have an amazing team you kind of have fun unless it's something just from a physical standpoint I get it, you know, because you're in a physically demanding position as far as dentistry. But look, I, I would say if you're doing 32 clinical hours a week as an associate, are there some things that you're doing on top of that from the business owners? Sure. I would say once a week, you're probably spending 15, 20 minutes just doing some of the business things from paying bills. And maybe you're spending some before and after hour times on individual employees. Maybe you're doing some CE. But oh my gosh, we're talking a few hours more a week to run and literally wake up with millions for the rest of your career because if you remember if you don't do this you're basically giving up several hundred thousand dollars a year for this effort yeah and we've talked to people who don't like doing a lot of those things and they hire someone and pay them and they still make more than they would as an associate and they don't have to do some of those ownership pieces they give those off so this will be a quick one this is about a concern they have and says what do you want to know the most or what are you most concerned about is time and stress are their two bullets <sighs> 
I mean, show me someone who doesn't have stress. Yeah. I mean, it's all stress in different forms. We say here at King Waters, there's stress with money and there's stress without money. I'd much rather have stress with money. <laughs> it's just, you know, stress with this is what's going on with my spouse. The stress with this is going on with my kids. Stress with this work or this patient. It's all stress. Yeah, I think sometimes people put things on themselves that they don't need to have. So if you try to build something that's just not what you are, you try to build a partnership when you're not partnership material, you kind of create stress that maybe you don't need. Like, let's just take a hard look at what we want and what our goals are and kind of keep those things aligned. And I think that also helps manage it a bit. But I mean, like, welcome to life. Like, right, stress exists. Right. Should we keep going a little bit longer? I think maybe like one more. All right, one more. One more. Is, is it a good one? Yeah, yeah. What or we'll do two? is we'll keep pushing through the, I think what we'll do is we'll sprinkle some of these questions in other episodes. Per good idea. Year. We'll yeah. do it. All right. So this is a great one too. So this one, it talks about starting a practice from scratch. So what is the best way to acquire new patients? So what does that mean to you? The best way to acquire new patients. I think personally, the best way to acquire new patients is from your existing patients and referrals include the cheapest way. And then marketing, but tracking your marketing. But I think you have another idea. When this says starting from scratch, to me, I think of zero patients. So what you Oh, just, I missed that part of the question. Duh, yes, yeah. Sorry. No, but I mean, I understand what you're saying. Like, the best way to acquire new patients is going to be from... Take care know, of the people you already have. Yeah, but in this case, if I, I don't have anybody, then that's hard to get them to refer. Yeah, so. <laughs> that, would, that would be challenging, Loretto. Yeah, yeah. 100% return on zero, Christy. <laughs> they're not knocking on your door. Math is my specialty. <laughs> so when I'm thinking about starting from scratch, I mean, acquiring patients, one way it could be is the guy or guy across the street maybe has a smaller practice that I might be able to acquire their patients acquiring new patients would be on a beautiful marketing that would come from great demographics and a great front desk and great training and great branding but this is an uphill road oh yeah you have to hustle yeah if you want stress borrow five hundred thousand dollars be five hundred thousand dollars in dental school debt five hundred thousand dollars in your home debt and have no patience. Yeah, the best way to acquire new patients in a startup is to know and have a plan and have demographics and just hit the ground hustling because yeah. that's what you got to do. So we're going to do an episode. I got this question several times in the last few weeks as far as like, well, can you tell the difference between like Kane Waters and NDP and what this is about? And so I start telling the story and it's a really good story. So I'm going to do an episode on just kind of the history and the involvement of NDP. But man, I can tell you right now, that I would wake up in the middle of the night with a weight like on your sternum just sitting there and waking up with no breath, stressed about the business. Mm-hmm. And it's because I didn't make any money. So I did not make any money on this journey for so long. And it was so painful because the amount of effort, energy, and passion that I had but I just didn't have the right model. So we are setting ourselves we up going. for a couple more episodes. 2020. Yes. So we will tell that story. Christy, we only got through probably eight or nine pages here of a couple. So we will definitely have a few Round more episodes for uh, sure. coming in for 2020 of these. But uh been fun. That was super fun. Absolutely. So we are going to be back. We have a couple more episodes this year before we wrap up 2019 and head into 2020. Thanks so much for listening. You guys are fantastic. Welcome to new listeners. Thank you for all of you who hang around week after week. And if you don't already, subscribe. Like us on Facebook, LinkedIn. Until next time. All right. Good job, Christy.